here in our series on the prayer of the high priest, Jesus Christ. And the focus now is him calling his disciples together in perfect unity. Now on the front of your worship folder, no, I didn't pick an old symbol. It does look like Christmas. People have talked about Christmas in July, haven't they? If you look on the front cover, it says something about Emmanuel. Simply means God with us. It'll make more sense here in a minute as we go through this text today. Jesus' prayer, his intercession for the saints, then and even continuing now, is that for this perfecting work. It's described in verse 23. If you remember, he prays for his disciples that they would become perfectly one. We talked about that last week, this perfect. It is in the sense of maturity or completeness. It is the result of the work of Christ In the life of the believer, it will assuredly be done, that is, be completed. This state of then described as perfection in the sense of completion, maturity, if you will, it'll find its complete expression in what we would call the glorified state. That is, every true believer, every true disciple, every true Christian, they're all one and the same, by the way, They will be made perfectly righteous, clothed in the perfections of Christ in the eternal state. This is the glory of Christ displayed in the perfect redemption, the complete redemption, if you will, even of the body and the resurrection of the body and given a glorified body. This is not yet but certainly will be. In the now, expressions of the glory of Christ is manifested in the life of a believer in a progressive sense, in a maturing sense. A Christian, a disciple, a believer will continue on a trajectory of spiritual growth. It'll be seen in the change of godly attitudes, affections, and actions. All of us will fall short to some degree of the glory of God in this life, in our body as we wrestle with the flesh. However, there is a change of mind, all things made new. That is, a Christian has a new mindset, a regenerate mind, in which then a desire for repentance and faith and trust in God, seeking him as a refuge. But this imagery here of being conformed to Christ is something the apostles taught because this is what Christ taught his, what? Disciples, his followers, His Christians, that is, little Christs. That's the goal, that's the focus, is Christ. Let me read you a couple passages that Paul writes to two different churches. One in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 3.18. I'll read it for you. And we all, with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, 
by the way, unveiled how, we talked about that last week, it is through the revelation of Jesus Christ, you have a unique view of who God is through the revelation that is granted to us by Jesus Christ, then we are then beholding his glory, that is, that which is beautiful, that is, which is wonderful, that is awesome, if you will. Beholding that, then being able to see that, we are being, and here's the phrase I want, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's the idea. You behold the glory of Christ, it affects the regenerate mind going from one level of glory to another. I hope when you sing these hymns that you think about such phrases as, and can it be, and it is awestruck, right? You think about the the wonderful grace of Jesus that abounds more than your Sin. This is a level of glory. And the more you know it, understand it through the work of the Holy Spirit, you are then being transformed to do what? To look more like Christ, if you will. And this isn't a work of the flesh. This isn't a work of, okay, I'll just fulfill these certain requirements and it'll happen. No, this is a dynamic, transforming work of the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, that's how it finishes. It resolves this statement by saying, how do you go from one level degree of glory to another? For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in your very life. Transforming you to look more like Christ. Paul would say it to the church of Rome. In a passage we're familiar with in Romans 8. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now predestination just simply means to determine ahead of time. Foreknow has to do with the idea of not just knowing something. Of course, God knows everything. He is omniscient after all. But foreknow is that he had set his affections on those that he would predetermine. And it isn't just to a plan to, to get you into the presence of God. What is being predetermined, if you will, beyond that it is, and included certainly in that, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Predestination has much to do with bringing you to Christ so that you would look like Christ conformed to his image. Can I tell you this hopeful thing, beloved? You say, I don't look a lot like Christ. Especially when I look at him. (laughs) And I can bear myself, of course. But can I tell you this? Jesus' prayer for you will be accomplished. You will look like Christ. In the eternal state, absolutely, in its perfection, all sin will be gone. And all that will remain is the glory of Christ's work in you. In this life, however, you will see glimpses of it, and I pray that you'll see even more. That's the goal here, that you will be 
made mature, made complete, perfected, not just sometime in the future, but day by day, even now, as you look and behold the glory of Christ, you're changed from one image of glory into the other, conforming, if you will, in this text, to the image of Christ, that you might be a true brother, if you will, in that terminology. It will be accomplished. The wretched man that you see will be made wonderful by Christ, and hopefully you'll see a few glimpses of that wonder as Christ works on the heart of each one of us. We will be made perfectly one, verse 23. It is expressed progressively in this life. This is going to be facilitated, of course, through the revelation of Jesus Christ, his incarnation, his works, his word given to his disciples, which the Holy Spirit imparted to us even this day that you have with you even now. These things, beloved, are written that you would be able to see the glory of Christ, to grow in grace and knowledge of him, to be made perfect in this sense. Perfect in the sense of maturing, being complete. Remember John would say as his gospel, the reason I wrote these things down here is that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and by believing that you might have life in his name. This isn't just an escape from hell. That is that you might have life right now. Life in its abundance. Living, being conformed to the image of Christ is true living. It is true life. There are lies of the devil who would say, oh, come, walk with us, go down this path. That is the path of destruction, it is the path of death. Not just eternal death and destruction, but even in this life. Come to Christ, walk with him. He offers life and in its abundance. Well, our focus today, though, is going to be in this Perfecting unity, how will this come about? Certainly, we need the revelation of Christ, which we have, the knowledge in our own hearts, the regenerative work. But beyond that, there is a promise in our text. And the promise is that God is with you, not just then in the eternal state, but right now, here today with you always to the end of the age. Let's look at that and I'll focus on verse 23 and even back to verse 21 in our text to look at this concept of God with his people and relate how this will affect the unity of the believers which Christ calls for. Let's read it in its context, beginning at verse 20 in chapter 17. I do not ask for these only, that is the disciples in the room, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And that they may be also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. A righteous father, even though the world doesn't know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I pray for the truth of Christ in us, the hope of glory, will resound among your saints. May it have a redemptive and transformative work in our hearts, being another factor to indeed conform us to the image of your Son. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This text here, if you read it carefully, particularly with the I and them and you and me and me and them and all of that, it, you can get a little lost in some of the language, I understand. It can be a bit blurry. So I'd like to clarify that a little bit and demonstrate how this would relate to this prayer of unity among the saints. Unity or communion, fellowship, you might think of that term, with God and then naturally with one another. When I, when I deal with a text often, I ask a couple of questions. You know, what does it mean? And why does it matter? You know, those, those are always driving forces. What does it mean and what does it matter? And what does it mean is what did the author intend for it to say and what significant truth then would, would be applicable then in my life? And for your case, it may be applicable in a number of ways, but these are great questions to ask. And I would answer it as I put on the back of your worship folder, the, on the first a- aspect here, what is, what is meant here, what, is, what he's driving at is that God is with us. Okay, I know that. No, I really mean that. And when I say us, you might even put here, it's us, all believers, these ones he says here, he doesn't ask just for those in the room, but also all who will believe. That is you. If you're in Christ, God is with you right now. Why does it matter? Because God is for you if you're in Christ. That's what matters. That's what makes the difference. Let's look at this particularly with his presence that he is talking about. And even though it may still be a little blurry, what does it mean by his presence? I'll try to clarify to some degree, but the biggest thing to know is that God is indeed with his people. Notice verse um, 23. It talks about his presence with us. I and them and you and me, that they might be, what, perfectly one. So, Christ is in them. But back up to verse 21, and here is a comparison of what that looks like. 
Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Okay? This in us here, speaking of the triune God, that, that the disciples would be in him. And then here in verse 23, Christ is going to be in them. The point here, as it unfolds, I hope you'll see, he's speaking of an intimate relationship. You don't understand exactly how all that works. How is it that the Father's in the Christ and then, then we're going to be in them and then Christ says he's in us and all of that. Don't get lost in some of the ways that it is expressed. Understand what he's talking about is an intimate, personal relationship with God. Do you think the Father and the Son have a close relationship? <laughs> yes. A perfect relationship. A completed relationship. And this is what Christ is praying for. That there would be a complete, a perfect, an intimate relationship. This is the hope of God's people. And it has always been that way. And here I invite you to jump back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. Mankind, the crown of his creation, distinct, by the way, from Every other animal, despite what our culture says, mankind is unique, made in the image of God. We would learn that in the first couple of chapters of Genesis as it's explained. Mankind is not just some animal that developed on its own and accomplished many things. That would be impossible. It has never happened and it never will happen. Mankind is God's unique design both male and female, God has purposes for it, ultimately display his glory. His glory is displayed in image bearers of him. Mankind is unique in that way. But we know that there was a relationship initially established as God created mankind, Adam, and Eve, and he had a relationship with Adam, talked to him, told him the parameters. And you know the rest of the story by Genesis chapter 3. We call it the fall, a rebellion. What was facilitated that rebellion? The father of lies, the devil. A spiritual battle and warfare of lies, things that are not true. Oh, there might have been elements to it, but essentially it's false about what God has said. Has God said? God's word was questioned. They rebelled. They disobeyed. And what were the consequences of that rebellion and disobedience? That intimate, personal relationship for which man was desired, was designed, should I said, and desired was broken off. Look at the response, and I'll just highlight it here, verse 8 of chapter 3. Here in their broken state of fellowship with God, they hear the sound of God, the Lord God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The imagery here is they had a close, personal, intimate relationship. Now something's different after sin. 
God is being feared, right? Here God is coming in the lovely part of the day. It should be a beautiful experience where God comes to commune with his people. And they do what? Verse 8, second half, and the man and his wife hid themselves from what? From the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. As if that could hide anyone. But this is the response. Here God is with them and comes to them and is in their presence to have a fellowship with them, if you will. And they do what? Their response is then to hide themselves from that presence. The guilt of their actions then break the fellowship that they once have. Break this personal relationship that they once have. Now their sin was magnified by the glory of God's perfections. His presence then became a judgment to them. They were clothed in sinful garments. What was beautiful to behold now struck terror in their heart. But God in his judgment and his predetermined plan, if you will, drop down to verse 15. In the curse given is a promise. This is a forward looking, a glimpse of the gospel right here at the beginning. 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Well, this is the proto-gospel. Just a picture. We know how it fills out because we have the rest of the story, don't we? Her offspring would be a man born of a virgin. He would come forth and be crushed, not for his wickedness, but for ours. But this very act then would destroy the very works of the devil. The prophet Isaiah puts it this way in a familiar passage, 714 of his prophecy. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name, what? Emmanuel. Emmanuel. What's what's Emmanuel mean? Matthew tells us that when he begins the gospel. And he said that time is right now. Behold, 123, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew helps us out for any non-Hebrew or non-Christian folks that may not know. He said, which means what you said, God with us. Paradise then that lost and then regained is not a place. It's a person. It is God with us. It is the very presence of God with us. That's what he's getting at with this idea in verse 23 of chapter 17, I am them. It is sin that would create the barrier by which we could not 
stand in the presence of God. In the day of judgment, when Christ comes, as the book of Revelation explains, that those that are outside of Christ would much rather have boulders fall on their head than to look at Christ. He is a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. And if you are not clothed in his righteousness, protected by him, who can save you from the wrath of the Lamb? Only Christ. I and them, the them that he speaks of in verse 23 is the same in verse 20. That's you. The promise of Christ's high priestly prayer is that he, is going, he promises to be in you, to be with you, to eternally dwell with you. Beloved, that is not just in the future. I, I want you to bring this back to the now. Can I tell you this? That God, if you're in Christ, God is with you now. Jesus Christ is with you now. That unique incarnation that came in, described in Matthew 1.23, God with us, he's never left his people. Now his people may leave him, if you will, but he never leaves. He is with us. In fact, Think of the Gospel of Matthew as having two bookends. You know what's at the beginning, 123. God with us, right? Do you remember how it closes? He tells these very disciples to go, you've memorized it, into all the world, preach the Gospel, right? Make disciples of every people group, they. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them all things that I have taught you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. God's with his people now. He's with you today at this very moment, if you're in Christ, to the end of the age. Now, you might scratch your head. I think that's the point here. It is both now and forevermore. In Christ, I would say, then you no longer need to hide in the trees away from God's presence. He's with you. That communion that relationship then has been restored. Through the presence of Christ, then the fellowship with God and then with each other has been restored. The sin that would otherwise divide us has been resolved. The gap has been bridged. In fact, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, not just some of it. It's a complete restoration. And even among his people, though we may transgress against one another, it's the same response. We forgive. We repent. We ask for forgiveness. We receive forgiveness. Not merited on the basis that we deserve it. Of course not. 
It's grace. Grace is the granting of what you don't deserve. Mercy is not giving you what you actually deserve. But when you think about Christ making the statement where he says in our text, I in them, and as the gospel writers wrote, that Christ said, okay, uh, I'm here, incarnation in the ministry, but that's right, he kept talking about he's ascending above, and then, and then here in that text in Matthew, he says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I thought he ascended, as we even said in the systematic theology here from the Apostles' Creed, that he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. How could he also say that I am in them? This is confusing, perhaps, some. John chapter 14. If you don't mind, turn there. John chapter 14. Let me give you a brief foundation for that. If you remember in John 14, beautiful passage. I love that phrase in there where it says, Christ says, I will not leave you orphans, I will come. So he's coming, but he's also not going to leave you orphans, leave you alone. Specifically, the promise in, drop down to verse 16 I will ask the Father, 1416, he will give you another helper, another advocate, is what the idea here is. Another of the exact same as me. In other words, God. To be with you how long? Forever. God is with his people forever. Even in the present time, and as Christ ascends on high, he says, I'm going to give you another of the exact same kind. Who is he? Verse 17, the spirit of truth. Christ is truth incarnate. And here, it's a promise of the sending of the Holy Spirit. And you have the triune God involved. Father, the Son's asking the Father, and he's sending the Spirit. The unique aspect there, and this is why I want you to look at the text, verse 17. The world can't receive it because they neither see him or know him. This is a unique gift given to those that have a regenerate heart. Who are not dead, who are not blind. They can actually, in the imagery here, see and know. They have the living capacity to have this revelatory information. They have eyes to see it, if you will. So the world is not in that aspect, but those that are in Christ. And then here's the phraseology here. When you see the last part of verse 17, you know him. Why do you know him? Because Christ made him known. You know him. He dwells with you and will be in you. The indwelling of the believer by the Holy Spirit is a functional ministry of the Holy, of the Holy Spirit. The manifestation of Christ will no longer be a physical one in this terrestrial world. But the manifestation of God, if you will, will be known through the presence of the Holy Spirit. 
Okay, well, how does that answer verse 23 in chapter 17 where it says, I in them. I know he's going to send the Holy Spirit. and We talk about that in dwelling the believers. But how is it that I am in them? When Jesus says that in our text here, notice here the spirit of truth. It says he dwells with and he will be. In what way is he dwelling with them then and will be? The nature of the Holy Spirit, we must not forget, he's God. The nature of Jesus Christ is that he's God. Look at verse 23 of chapter 14. Is an expansion of this, and he says, and my, my, he talked about those that are in Christ, that it's evident by, they love him and keep his word. My father will love him, verse 23 of chapter 14, and we, plural, will come to him and make our home with him. So here you, you had the spirit spoken of in verse 16 and 17. And now you have the Father and the Son in the sense of we are going to come and dwell. Well, who is it? It's God. It's God with us. In the scriptures, you're going to find an interchangeability, if you will, between the the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in the expression of this truth that God is with you. If God is with you, you can say that the Father is with me, that the Son is with me, and the Spirit is with me. You know why? Because they're not parts. They're never separated. I know we have to talk of it in that way, and maybe in our minds and our imagery it comes across that way at times, but God is one being. He's always been one being. He is three persons, and that is unique. And what can be said of the Father and the Son and the Spirit can be said of God. And hence, here you have, in in that way, an interchangeability. I'll just read you a couple of texts that that switch that around a, a bit. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it for you. Romans 8, 9. You're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In fact, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. Well, every Christian, here's the promise. Christ said, I'm going to give you the Spirit. He's going to dwell in you. But if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. Is it the Holy Spirit or is it the Spirit of Christ? It's God with us. In Colossians 1.27, God chose to make known to the Gentiles the riches and the glory of his mystery, which is what? Christ in you. Same imagery. That is God with us. In the Athanasians Creed, which we might teach on at some point, I enjoyed the Apostles' Creed, we might do this. But in that particular creed, which is again a systematic way of saying this biblical truth, that's what we must base this truth on, what does Scripture say? But to kind of summarize it and explain it then, the early church put it this way, we worship one God in Trinity. 
Trinity in unity, and that is key, in unity, always in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. The substance would be the essence of God or his being. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit, but the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal, such as the Father is, such as the Son is, and such the Holy Spirit is. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology puts it this way, God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is, and note this, is fully God and There is one God. Now, I understand this is um, a mystery in the sense it's hard to get a hold of because there is nothing else like God. It's hard to relate to. We try and we make examples of whatever that might be, but it always falls short. This is a unique aspect. The point is, though, in our thinking, when you think, oh, well, I'm indwelled by the Holy Spirit, that is true. That's functionally what Christ, the Father, and the Son do. They send the Spirit. But recognize this, the God doesn't exist in three parts, but three persons. And so to say that Holy Spirit is indwelling the life of the believer is to say that God is with us, Emmanuel. That's the point. The person of the Father, Grudem states, possesses the whole being of God in himself. And similarly, the Son possesses the whole being of God in himself. And the Holy Spirit possesses the whole being of God in himself. When we speak of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together, we are not speaking of any greater being when we speak of the Father alone, or the Son alone, or the Holy Spirit alone. The Father is all of God's being. The Son is also all of God's being. And the Holy Spirit is all of God's being. The distinctions then that we make have to do in the persons of God have to do with relationships and functions, if you will. So when we look at this and we talk about the differences between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, there's no difference in their attributes, their essence. The only difference is how they relate to one another and the created world. We call it the economic trinity in that sense. So when we go back to look at this then, and we say God is indwelling the believer, what do we mean? This relationship between God and man is then restored. It isn't as if you had some sort of little container in your heart. I know people say, well, ask Jesus in your heart. It isn't as if you have some little box to carry around the Holy Spirit or 
the fullness of God, as we've now explained. God is omnipresent. But he said, but the, but this idea of this indwelling is the idea of a restored relationship in the pre, in the very presence of God, which you have right now. Think of the garden. You no longer have to hide. That relationship has been restored by the work of Jesus Christ and God is with us even now. And that restored relationship will be maintained from now till eternity, as Jesus said, to the end of the age. So why does it matter? The reason it matters is because now, beloved, you could recognize, although everybody else might be against you, God is for you. This work will be completed. It will be perfected. You will see glimpses of it. But in this life, I don't care what happens for you. If you're in Christ, God is for you. If you're in Christ, God is with you. As he would say, back to our text, In verse 21, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, they also will be in us. That is, this restored relationship, I in them and you in me, verse 23, that they may be perfectly one. It's the basis for your restored relationship. It's the basis, this spiritual reunion we have with God then that will restore any fellowship with one another. Now as I think about this God for us, this, as it's expressed here with the language we use, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, God with us, there are a lot of things that we could then think about as far as the benefits that this would bring about. We know the Holy Spirit brings about what we would call illumination. Helps us to understand the truth, the word. We know that the Holy Spirit and God indwelling the believer will bring about comfort. It'll bring about conviction. It'll bring about assurance. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. It'll bring about intercession in prayer as we don't even know what to ask, but he'll ask on our behalf. What a, what a great recognition that God is actually for you. It doesn't matter whether anybody else is or not. God is. All of these things are worthy of noting, and we could go on each one, I suppose, but I want to emphasize just one aspect of this, and that is the indwelling of God in the life of a believer, a disciple, a Christian. It gives both the ability as well as the motivation to overcome that which would separate you from God, sin. God is for you. If you regard iniquity in your heart, that's going to break your fellowship with God. If you live a 
disobedient life to his commands, you demonstrate that you don't love him. If you engage in deeds of the flesh, you can't expect to be in communion with him. So this primary effect, function, if you will, of the indwelling spirit is to bring about fellowship with God by empowering you by the Spirit to overcome the sins that would otherwise be a barrier to your relationship. And I'll finish with a few texts. We'll see what I can get through. But I want you to turn there and recognize this truth, not from my ideas, but from the Word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. Let's first look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. Romans 8, 9. The Holy Spirit dwelling in the life of the believer then, this promise, bring about fellowship with him by overcoming the power of sin in your life. Verse 9. You, however, are not of the flesh, but in the Spirit. He's describing the distinction between those that are in Christ. They're no longer in of the flesh, if you will. In the flesh. That is, you're not empowered by that, but you're uniquely regenerate by the Spirit. In fact, if, the, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, it's one of the evidences if it's of, of the regenerate heart. If, if the Spirit of God, and that's the same phraseology, if he dwells in you. Anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. And notice how it interchanges. I hope you understand that. It's the, it, this is talking about God. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're, you don't belong. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So there's a uniqueness as Christ died to sin, so those that are in Christ have died to sin and lived to what? A newness of life, resurrected by Christ. If the Spirit of Him, verse 11, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. This is the functional work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. This is what it means to say that God is with us. It isn't that we have some sort of trinket that we carry about, some sort of special treasure that we show off. There is a dynamic work in the life of the believer to overcome sin giving life to your mortal body by the Spirit that dwells in you. God, that's what it means that God would be for you. That's what it means to say, Emmanuel, God with us. A struggle in the flesh, the call is to look to the Spirit. Look to God who dwells in you. Another passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 
When he talks about giving you life, it isn't just life in the future, it's life now, it's life overcoming the dead, the deeds of the flesh, if you will. Paul, Paul um, explains this in further detail to the church of Corinth. Here we're struggling to make wise decisions. That is, not to live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Recognizing that God is indeed with them. What does it mean for God to dwell with them? Well, let's just jump down to verse 12 of chapter 6, where he says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be then dominated by anything. What he's saying is he's not under law, if you will, but he's under grace. We don't pass out a list of do's and don'ts for you to keep track of. Might help you in some things, but here is the idea that, um, look, I can do what I want, but there are some things that won't help me. Obviously, there's some specific Things that you shouldn't do that are clear, but there's many other things in this life, well, you're not sure about. And you need wisdom. So what do you do? Get this extended list of 10,000 things that you don't do? And here's an example. In wisdom, a phrase that went along that said, well, food's meant for the stomach, stomach's for food. The phrase they said, "Hey, you know, it's just natural, just part of nature." You know, this is this is the because it's the natural inclination of a person. Then God's not going to frown on it. Uh, by the way, this is a common way to deal with um, with lust, particularly disordered. That would be homosexuality. Well, they just love one another, and then what what it's all about? No. That will hinder you. It will destroy you. In fact, he'll say, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not specifically meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. The point is you would glorify God in your body. Why? On what basis? Same as he told the church of Rome, God raised the Lord will also raise us up by his power. Those that are in Christ have a unique um, state of being raised up by his power. And then he illustrates it by reminding this church that Christ is in you, that God is with you. Any example here he gives, don't you know, and this is dealing specifically with sexual immorality, he says, don't you know that your body is a member of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them a member of a prostitute? Wow, could you imagine what that would do to folks that were um, overcome, struggled, if you will, with pornography? God is with you. Not for you to cower and hide in the trees, but he is with you to give you life and more abundant. If you really believe this, would you make your 
member of Christ to be a member of a prostitute? And the response is, never. Of course you wouldn't. The only way you would do this is you, you imagine, if you're in Christ, you imagine God is not with you. And if he's not with you, then you go among the trees and do what you please. But those that recognize that God is with you, you wouldn't join to a prostitute and become one with her. The charge then, verse 18, is to flee sexual immorality. And that, that's what that church was dealing with. He calls them to recognize that God is with us. And on that basis then, it's motivational, if you will, to indeed do that. The power of which Jesus already discussed here, it is through the power of the Holy Spirit that you indeed will put to death the deeds of the flesh. But sometimes you just need to be reminded about this great truth that God is with you. And God is for you. Every other sin, and he's dealing specifically with sexual immorality, every other sin is a person commits outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a, here's the imagery, temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Change everything. Maybe to overcome habitual sin or lust or things that might distract you, focus on that which is good, pure, lovely. Focus on God. Focus on this truth of God that the, your body then is a, is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. Beyond that, those that are in Christ, you're not your own anyway. You were bought with the price, Christ's death, his sacrifice. So the motivation is simply this, glorify God in your body. Beloved, we have a relationship, if you're in Christ, you have the presence of God with you, and the presence of God with you for you in a positive way. It isn't to bring about judgment. That judgment was brought about on Jesus Christ who paid for every one of our sin. But it will bring about a motivation, if you will, to do what? To live for the glory of God in every aspect of your life, including and most notably your body. We have a relationship restored by Jesus Christ. God is uniquely present with his people. This is not just thrown out there for everyone. Without the indwelling spirit in your heart, you don't know God. But you know him. If the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. And be helpful to be reminded of that fact. 
Not in fear that, oh, he's going to be like uh, some schoolmarm that comes in and catches you goofing off. Catches you in some sort of evil thought or action. But he's there in the presence of your life to do just that, to grant you life, to grant you the strength to walk in the newness of life. Let us pray. Father, I'm thankful that indeed you are with us. You're not leaving us as orphans, not leaving us alone. But indeed, each one of us in Christ have been promised this perfecting work of Christ, the function of the Holy Spirit in our life. I pray for your people and I pray for myself that we would be continually more conformed to the image of Christ so that the world would see Christ and know Christ and hear Christ. I pray that you would grant us indeed the comfort that we would have in the conviction of your presence. I pray for your people. I pray for myself that we would believe truly that you are and that you are a warder of those who diligently seek you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, I'm going to give